Hallelujah. What a savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your only begotten son into this world to redeem us from our sins. Thank you that in your great and eternal love, you gave Christ to be the propitiation for our sins, to suffer in our place, to receive the judgment that we deserved, to satisfy and pacify your wrath against our sins. Father, as your people, we stand fully forgiven tonight, and we know that that is only because of how Jesus was sacrificed on our behalf. Father, as we slow down this evening, as we pause, as we meditate, would you please send your Holy Spirit to us in order to help us to see Jesus more fully and to be affected by considering his work on the cross. Father, I pray that you would humble us tonight, sober us tonight, and through that increase, Lord, increase our gratitude and our joy in the work that has been done. Father, it is in the name of this sacrificial lamb, this one who gave himself for us, the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may have your seats. Friends, thank you for being here tonight. My name is Joel Shore. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. If you are a guest, we are honored by your presence as we pause as a church family to consider the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together. If you are a newer Christian, maybe even not a Christian yet, or maybe you're just less familiar with your Bible, uh, you might think that for us to speak about the death and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter weekend, that we would need to focus on only the specific parts of Scripture that give us the crucifixion and the resurrection accounts. You might think that we need to focus on the gospel accounts, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, in order to consider the death and resurrection of Christ as they were first recorded as historical events in those places. But something that not everyone is aware of is that the entire Bible, from beginning to end, is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even in the Old Testament, all of, all of the old Bible stories that many of us grew up hearing, spoken, and shared, those are not just moral lessons for us to consider. Those are all pictures. Those are all stories of Jesus and how he would one day come to save his people from their sins. And if you've been with us as a church family over the last few months, you know that this is true from our study in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the very first book of our Bibles. It's all about the beginning things. It's all about how this world and God's story of redemption got started. And even in Genesis, we see Easter weekend unfold. Even in Genesis, we see the death of Christ foreshadowed, as we will consider tonight. And we even see his resurrection foreshadowed in Genesis, as we will see this Sunday morning. For tonight, we want to consider the cross. We want to consider how the wrath of God was poured out on God the Son and not on us. 
We want our hearts to be humbled and to be sobered by the grace and mercy that this is. We deserved death. We deserved punishment. But yet through Christ, we have been spared. If you will remember with me from our study in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 is the point in our Bibles where sin enters into this world. God had created a beautiful paradise for his people in the Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve, our first parents, chose to live in their independence and pride against God's gracious rule and authority. They decided to pursue their own will apart from God's will. And the result, the consequence, was that all humanity fell into sin and condemnation. The result... From that first Adam's sin is and was catastrophic. Scripture says in unmistakable terms, the wages of sin is death. And not just physical death as this world became broken, but spiritual and emotional and most of all relational death as, as, as our relationship with God was severed. As Adam and Eve were unable to remain in the Garden of Eden where God's presence resided. The breaking of this relationship with God was so real that God cast them out of the garden. He, he threw them out of his presence. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. It says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. It says, He drove out the man. It's very clear in this text, which is only the third page of our Bibles. It's very clear that the result of our sin before a holy and pure God, friend, the result of your sin before a holy and pure God is separation. There is now a great chasm that exists between you and God because of your sin. And listen, it is a chasm that you cannot even try to bridge on your own. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we picture the result of sin like the Grand Canyon, that God is on one side of it and we are on the other. And no matter how hard we try to live a good life, we can never jump over that chasm and reach God. And that's right. That, that's a pretty good picture. But I think that it's more than that. It's not just that we could never do enough good works in order to earn God's favor if we tried. It's also that God is actively opposed to us in our sin. Our position before him has fallen because of sin and the thrice holy God, holy, 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 must actively oppose those who have any stain of sin upon them. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. We see here that God did not just throw Adam and Eve out. No, he actively kept them out of his presence. Look at what it says in verse 24. It says, And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Be because of sin, they were not only cast out. Because of sin, God's judgment actively stood against them. A, a cherubim, an angel, with a, with a flaming sword in his hand, is placed in the way to block the way back into God's presence. Folks, that, that cherubim, with that flaming sword in his hand, is a sign of God's judgment. 
That cherubim with his, his flaming sword is a sign of God's violent wrath against those who are sinful. It's a picture of his, his fierce anger and eternal judgment against those who have sinned against his eternal holiness. It's a picture of the death that must come to sinners before a holy God. And friends, the picture of this cherubim and his flaming sword would not go away very quickly. Our, our sin against God is not like an argument that you have with your best friend where you go your separate ways and forget about it in a few days and, and eventually you're back to normal. No, that's not how it is with God. Our sin against God is eternal and it requires eternal solutions. We, we see how permanent the stain of our sin is by considering the, this imagery of a cherubim and a, and a sword throughout the rest of Scripture. Think about the moment when Joshua, in the book of Joshua, is about to lead God's people into the promised land. When he's on the very edge of the promised land, he encounters a man, and a man with a drawn sword. And the man says to him, this is holy ground. He's, he's guarding the way back into God's presence. E even more than that, think about the tabernacle. Think, think about the temple with me where God's holy presence would reside. When we look at the tabernacle and temple, we see a lot of garden imagery there. There's trees and there's flowers and there's different kinds of buds and there's the sun and there's the stars represented. It's all picturing the garden. It's reminding us of the fruitfulness and the happiness, the joy of the Garden of Eden when all of us would have been in relationship with God. But there is other imagery in the temple as well. In Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, we learn that within the tabernacle and temple, there was to be a, a thick curtain, inches thick, a curtain that would separate the holy place from the most holy place. This thick curtain protected the Ark of the Covenant, which was where God's presence was found. And do you know what it says about this curtain in, in Exodus 26? It says this, it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And the veil shall separate you from the holy place, from the most holy place. That there was a cherubim guarding the way into God's presence right there in the temple. Just like when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. There was this thick, daily, unavoidable reminder that to get back into God's presence required judgment. The penalty must be paid. The wages of sin is death. The sword must fall. And friend, on our own, on your own, you have no hope of avoiding that sword. God's word makes it very clear that the sword of God's judgment will fall against every sin that has ever been committed by every man and woman that has ever lived. It's guaranteed. It's unavoidable. The sword will fall on you. It will fall on all of us unless, unless church the sword will fall on us unless someone is willing to have the sword fall on them instead of on us. This is the only way. The sword must fall. The, the question now for us is, who is it going to fall upon? 
And what we learn in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came into this world to have the sword fall on him. He came for this very purpose. Listen, the the cross was not a surprise for Jesus. He he was not shocked when when Judas betrayed him and the soldiers came to take him away. When, When he was gruesomely being flogged by the Roman soldiers, he did not wonder in his mind why this could possibly be happening to him. When when he bore that cross and he walked every painful step through the streets of Jerusalem, being mocked as he went up to the the hill called Calvary, he was not surprised as though something in his and his father's plan had gone wrong. When those nails were driven through his wrists, he did not wonder why he and the father had created wrists in the first place with nerves and with sensations of pain at all. No, none of that was a surprise. All this was intentional. All of this was seen and known all the way back in chapter Genesis chapter 3 and before. Before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time, God the Father, with, with God the Son, and with God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity and affection, love for one another, they knew that this would be the end result of creating a people in their image and for their glory. They knew that it would require the sword of God's wrath to fall upon the Son. And they said, let's do it. It was a part of the plan. He did it because there was no other way, church, The sword was going to fall, but God so loved the world that he did not want all to perish. And so he had to find a way. And that way, that way was the slaughter of Christ the Son in our place. Friends, this is what we remember tonight together. The sword fell on Jesus The sword pierced his hands and and his side. The the sword pierced his very heart as his father in heaven turned away from him as he hung on the cross. Listen, for the first time in all eternity, there was relational space between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus cried on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of eternity, there was a relational divide between Father and Son. And it was all so so that there would be no longer a relational divide between God and us. Friends, the sword fell on Jesus so that it would not fall on you. Remember that tonight. Rejoice in that tonight. This is life for our souls. This is the gospel. We have a way back to God the Father because Jesus died in our place. Our relationship has been restored. And friend, that, that relationship is what you need most in life tonight. There's nothing else in life that you need more than this relationship with God, and he's made it possible. It's been restored for all who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's been restored. In fact, do you know what Luke, the gospel writer, says happened as Jesus hung on the cross? Luke recalls the crucifixion in detail, and then He says in Luke chapter 23, verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
The curtain with the cherubim on it was torn in two, like, like paper. That curtain was thick, a hand with thickness, at least four inches thick. But when Christ died on the cross, torn right down the middle. Who did that? Did the disciples do that? Did they sneak off to the, to the temple and say, hey, let's, let's wreak some havoc here? No, it was God who did that. He tore that, temp, that curtain because as the sword fell on his son Christ, there was no need for that curtain or that cherubim to remain any longer. The way had been made open. Access granted. Relationship restored. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Friends, this is why we call today Good Friday. There's so much about it that is horrible, but we call it good because of what Jesus accomplished for us in it. He cried, it is finished. Relationship restored. There's no greater news in all the world. Church, may we not rush by this tonight. May we not rush by this this weekend. May we not rush by the dark place that we were sentenced to be in. May we feel the weight of our sin. May we be humbled and sobered by it. But then, let us remember that that the sword that was meant for us fell on Christ. And we have now been given Life And so may we shout, may we sing, may we dance, may we anticipate Sunday morning with eagerness so that we as God's chosen and, and redeemed people can sing his glories because of the great things that he has done. We who had no relationship, we have been restored.